Here at this church, we want to have a sincere faith. Sincere faith. What is that? Sincere means free of deceit, hypocrisy, or falseness. It means genuine. It means real, pure, unmixed, unadulterated. Are all words to describe sincere faith, confidence, and trust in something or someone. So, we want to have a genuine, real confidence. Trust that is free of deceit, free of hypocrisy or falseness in God and His plan for our lives. We want to have a sincere faith. Here at this church, we believe that if people are connected to Jesus, they will be healed of their brokenness and have real and eternal life. That's why we're here today. We are here today to connect people with God. God who forgives sin through Jesus. That forgiveness heals our brokenness. Heals our brokenness, our cause for a disconnection from God. A true connection with God. Living with Him. Living for Him. Following His plan. That is real and eternal life. That's what it is. The problem with the church and also our church is that we become distracted or focused on the wrong things. The problem with the church as well as our church is being authentic, being real, confessing our sins, being transparent, acknowledging, acknowledging our continual need for God, our need to be continuously healed from sin. The brokenness in our lives caused by our selfish desires. The hard-heartedness keeping us from caring for the things of God. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness over the things of self. We're not transparent. We pretend we are okay. We are not okay. We know we are not okay. We have a word for that in the English language. To willfully do the opposite of what we say. It's a dirty word. It's called a hypocrite. It kind of leaves a film on your tongue when you say it. Hypocrite. It's just kind of nasty. You don't really like the taste of that word. don't really like to say it. And certainly don't like to be called it. It's kind of like that rather pompous looking self-righteous deacon that was endeavoring to impress upon a class of boys the importance of living the Christian life. Why do people call me a Christian? He asked. After a moment's pause, one youngster said, maybe it's because they don't know you. (laughs) Or like the three preachers who are out in a boat fishing. I won't hate on just the deacons. Get myself in this. They were out in the boat fishing. They all decided it was time to confess their sins. The first preacher says, well, I'm really struggling with alcohol. Every weekend, I really struggle not to have a few drinks. Please keep me in your prayers. And the second preacher said, well, I'm really struggling with pornography. Every night, I can, just, I can barely stand the temptation. Please keep me in your prayers. 
And the third preacher says, well, I struggle with gossip, and I can't wait for this boat to get back to the shore. <laughs> We're going to be looking today in 1 Timothy, a few verses there this morning. This letter, 1 Timothy, was written by Paul to Timothy shortly after Paul's release from prison, where Paul is at the end of the book of Acts. When you read the book of Acts, Paul's in prison. Shortly after he gets out of that situation, around 62 A.D., 64 A.D. at the latest, Paul has written this letter to Timothy. Timothy had been left behind, basically, as the pastor of the church of Ephesus. Ephesus was a bustling seaport city on the Aegean Sea in the Roman Empire. And Paul writes this letter to help instruct Timothy how to handle the false teachers popping up. False teachers popping up all over the place trying to lead the people astray trying to lead them away from the true doctrine, away from the true gospel of Jesus. That is why Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. So we'll pick up 1 Timothy in verse 3. Paul says to Timothy, As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach different doctrine, or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. These promote empty speculations rather than God's plan which operates by faith. Now the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Some have deviated from these and turned aside to fruitless discussion. They want to be teachers of the law, although they don't understand what they are saying or what they are insisting on. Now notice at the beginning, the distracted and disconnected people Paul is referring to. They're teaching false doctrine. Doctrine just means a collection of teachings. In verse 4, pay attention to their focus. It was on myths and genealogies. We could spend a long time digging into that, but simply put, it was like they were saying they had a secret sauce for living life. They had the secret knowledge, the secret way, the secret sauce. Instead of just focusing on God's plan of faith. And then you get to verse 5. But you, Timothy, and us, church, your reason, your focus, your priority, your goal of instruction, our goal of meeting here every week is to instruct in God's plan of faith, which leads to love, God's love, real love, self-sacrifice for the betterment of another love, not warm, fuzzy love, real love, faith love and action. And the foundation and motivation that must come from a pure heart, good conscience, and a sincere faith. That's what verse 5 says. The goal of our instruction is love, real love, self-sacrifice for the betterment of another love. And the foundation and motivation of that must be from a pure heart, good conscience, and a sincere faith. A pure heart. The heart in Scripture, and we you still use it this way sometimes and when we're talking about it, the heart is the center of thoughts. It's the center of motives and spiritual life. So a pure heart is cleansed from sin through faith in Jesus. Love from a pure heart is free of selfish motives and is honoring to God. A good conscience. This is a little different than how we think of good conscience now. 
And, and the way we think of having a conscience as in, the, in an individualistic way. You have a conscience, I have a conscience. And to have a good conscience, we would think, is in our own head dealing with what we are dealing with. But it, in the context of, the, of this time, when this would be written, to have good conscience meant living according to the norms of the group with which you were associated. So living without shame among your peers, among your companions in your group would be to have a good conscience. Kind of a similar thing, but, but carries a little bit different tone. And then a sincere faith. Belief and conduct guided by God's word. Sincere faith, belief and conduct guided by God's word. So if you take these here, you could sum it up like one commentary puts it. Paul's vision was that followers of Christ would form a community of sound conduct that kept its members accountable in their behavior and life. He hoped the end result would be a distinctive people known for their love. A distinctive people known for their love. That is our goal. There's our goal right there, church. Person that's new to being here, that's our goal. To be a distinctive people known for our love. A distinctive, recognizable, having a special quality, style, attractiveness, known for their love. Love for each other, first and foremost, and for everyone. Sincere faith. Sincerity. Free of deceit. Free of hypocrisy. Free of falseness. A sincere faith that makes us recognizable as a community that is known for our love. Our sacrificial way of bringing about the best ends for each other. That is the goal. Jesus speaks on a lack of sincerity. Paul is telling Timothy to make sure he has sincerity, but Jesus speaks about this subject also, about having a lack of sincerity. It's, your, it's the second verses that were up on the screen. Matthew 23. So hang with me as I read through Jesus' words on this subject of having a lack of sincerity. We're going to look at quite a few scriptures here. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples. Verse 1 of chapter 23 in Matthew. The scribes and the Pharisees are seated in the chair of Moses. Therefore, do whatever they tell you and observe it. But don't do what they do, because they don't practice what they preach, what they teach. They tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and put on people's shoulders. But they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them. They do everything to be observed by others. They enlarge their phylacteries and lengthen their tassels. They love the place of honor at banquets, the front seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called rabbi by the people. But as for you, do not be called rabbi, because you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, because you have one father who is in heaven. And do not be called master either, because you have one master, the Messiah, the greatest among you, will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So quick side note, that's why I don't care what you call me. I've been asked that a hundred times in this week. 
What do I call you now? Well, if you recall me Daniel before, call me Daniel. If you recall me Mo before, call me Mo. But you don't have to put anything else in front of that. If you want to, that's fine, but I promise you I'm not taking offense. I don't want a title. I don't need to be called teacher or pastor or anything else, brother or whatever. I don't care. Seriously, just call me whatever you want as long as you don't call me late for supper. That's the only thing that would bother me or upset me. That would hurt my feelings. But moving along, verse 13. Jesus changes gears here, and he gets a little serious and a little fired up. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You lock up the kingdom of heaven from people, for you don't go in, and you don't allow those entering to go in. And then some of your translations may have this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You devour widows' houses and make long prayers just for show. This is why you will receive a harsher punishment. Verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to make one proselyte or one convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as fit for hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides who say, whoever takes an oath by the sanctuary, it means nothing. But whoever takes an oath by the gold of the sanctuary is bound by his oath. Blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the sanctuary that sanctified the gold? Also, whoever takes an oath by the altar, it means nothing. But whoever takes an oath by the gift that is on it is bound by his oath. Blind people, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, the one who takes an oath by the altar takes an oath by it and by everything on it. The one who takes an oath by the sanctuary takes an oath by it and by him who dwells in it. And the one who takes an oath by heaven takes an oath by God's throne and by him who sits on it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You pay a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin, yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. These things should have been done without neglecting the others. Blind guides, you strain out a gnat, yet you gulp down a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You clean out the outside, of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup so, the, so that the outside of it may also become clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are all like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of dead man's bones and every impurity. In the same way, on the outside you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would have, wouldn't have taken part with them in shedding the prophets' blood. You, therefore, testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your father's sins. Snakes, broad of vipers, how can you escape being condemned to hell? Woo! <laughs> I mean, first of all, like, woo! You know, we, we talk about how God's love is not the warm and fuzzies, right? It's not the, the gumdrops and rainbows that, that, the, that our culture has made love out to be. You know how, how we know that? You just read the Bible. And look at what Jesus said. He's not being nice when he says this. He's not being pleasant. He's mad. He's really mad. 
And he's mad because these so-called religious leaders, these so-called people of God, men of God, are doing what he considers to be the worst thing that you could be doing. Using and manipulating and deceitfully using God's word for their own gain. And he tears them up. He lets them have it. He don't like it. Every time you see Jesus speaking to people that pretend to be something they're not, he's not very nice about how he feels about it. Love's not about being nice, per se. It's not a license to be impolite. You don't want to just be a jerk. That doesn't really help or gain anything. But Jesus is speaking the truth here, and he's not holding back. kind of fires me up. It definitely fires me up, actually. That was just a side note, though. We're going to quickly look at a few of these woes that Jesus gives, and then we'll hit the others later. A woe, in this instance, the way it's used, is a pronouncement of judgment. He's saying, condemnation on you. Judgment to you, you hypocrites. Woe. So to the first woe, to paraphrase, is what he's saying there, because of your willful denial of the truth about me, your hypocrisy, that's what hypocrisy is, willful denial, willfully doing opposite of what you say, you are slamming shut the door of the kingdom of God in the faces of others seeking me, primarily by the example of the way you live your lives. Think about that. That's an ouch statement. He's saying that by the way you live your lives, the hypocritical behavior you are literally slamming shut the opportunity for someone seeking God to reach God because they think you're of God, but you're not. That's a strong statement for Jesus to make right there. He didn't really like the Pharisees. I don't either. But I do. I do. I'm fearful of becoming a Pharisee. Because it's very easy to do. Very easy to do. The second woe. Some of your translations may not include this one. Because some of the older texts have this version there. And some of them don't. But it's also included in Luke and Mark. Um, so it's, it's in there either way. But the second woe says, You pretend you're important and helpful, but it's all for show. That's what the second one is there about the widow's. And the big long prayers in front of everybody. You pretend you're important and helpful, but it's all for show. You don't mean it, and I know that, Jesus says. Third woe, you'd go anywhere, land or sea, he says, you'd go anywhere to create a convert, a proselyte, but not a real convert, not a real convert, not somebody that's actually submitting to the gospel of Jesus, not a real convert, a convert to your way. For your gain. Not God's way. For God's glory. Your way for your gain. He really didn't like that one. And then fourth and fifth. We could spend a long time on these two. The sanctuaries and the, and the, and the altar. And taking your oath and, and all of that. We could spend a long time on these two. We could spend s several Sunday mornings just on those two things. But just... On a quick note, it's the equivalent of giving your word and then saying, oops, my fingers were crossed. 
That's kind of like what they're saying here. Not in that kind of a kiddish way, but in that kind of a manipulative way. You know what I'm talking about. You did it as a kid. I did it as a kid. You know, you try to get somebody to do something. You say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, do that. I'll do it with you. And then they do it, and you go, oh, my fingers are crossed. I didn't mean it. Right? Or maybe you, maybe you made a bet with a guy one time or something, and you said, when he came to ask you to pay up on the bet, hey, you lost. You paid it. Oh, man, we didn't shake on it. Right? Have you ever said that? I've said, I know I've said that. We didn't shake on it. I wasn't I wouldn't being for real. I didn't really mean what I said. It's another way of Jesus explaining how if you're sincere, your word matters. What you say matters, and giving your word matters. Your yes be your yes, and your no be your no, as he says in other places. This is another way of saying that. And not only were they not letting their yes be their yes, and their no be their no, but they were using the things of God to manipulate and get their way. By saying, well, you know, it's not this, it's not this, it doesn't, it's not a binding oath if I just say it in the church, right? It's only if I say it over the offering of the church. It was a financial thing. It was a, it was a money thing. Jesus really didn't like that. It reminds me of a story that my dad told me. I wasn't sure if I was going to share it or not, but I am. Um, I was raised that your, your word is priceless. As a man, to give your word and to back up your word, there's nothing better that you can do. There's nothing that, that has more value or will return to you more than that. And I remember my dad telling me a story one time. Um, he was uh, in a difficult spot, uh, and his landlord loaned him some money. And uh, long story behind all that, but just he loaned him some money, and my dad told him, thank you. And I will repay this as soon as I can. Okay? Now, this guy was kind of contrary. And that's putting it nicely. He was a difficult guy. A little strange. And this guy that loaned my dad the money talked to a mutual friend. My dad and this guy hadn't known each other very long. But my dad and this guy, the mutual friend, had known each other for a long time. And so this friend went and talked to that friend not too long after that and was kind of running my dad down a little bit, honestly. He said, you know, I loaned a little bit of money to, to Mickey Morris, and he, uh, he hadn't paid me back yet. And the mutual friend said, who? He said, Mickey Morris. He said, did Mickey say he would pay you back? And the contrary person said, yeah. He said, you'll get your money. My dad told me that story as a 15, 16-year-old, and it made sense to me then, but the older I've gotten, the more it makes sense to me. And the, the thing that he said after that was, my friend saying that my word mattered meant more to me than anything else he could have done for me. Son, make sure your word is honored. Make sure that when you give your word to someone, that they know that you mean it. And that's what these people in the fourth and fifth woes weren't doing. Not only were they breaking their word, they were intentionally manipulating their word from the get-go with the intention of breaking their word. 
Not a good thing. So my question for us this morning is, where's your sincerity level at? Where is your sincerity level at today? From one to ten. How sincere are you in the way that you live out God's call on your life? One being, you'd be lumped in with those Pharisees that Jesus is talking to. And ten being, you are super duper sincere. I mean, you live it, you talk it, you walk it, you preach it, you teach it, you do it. 100% sincere would be a 10. Where are you on that spectrum of things? And then, as individuals together as a corporate body, a church, where are we as a church on the level of our sincere faith? Do people that don't come to this church, our community around us, do they look at this church and say, those people mean what they say. You know, so-and-so, when he gives me his word, he backs it up. You know, so-and-so, she ain't perfect, just like me, but I'll tell you what, she messed up the other day, and she went to the boss and told the boss that she messed up. So we should be the, we should be the best employees anybody has. We should be the best employers anybody has. Christians being sincere in their faith, living out their call on their life. People should be that, that aren't Christians should say, you know, I don't really know about all that Christian stuff and believe it, I'll tell you what, but I wish I had more employees that were Christians. If all Christians are like him, all Christians were like her, bring them on. Give me as many of those as you can. Right? I've never had a better boss than this guy. I don't know about this Jesus thing. I know he goes to church, so I think that just means he gets up early on Sundays. I'm not really sure. They sing songs and stuff. But I tell you what, that guy treats me with integrity. That guy has helped me out of a tough spot and didn't ask a thing back for it. That guy said he would be there and he was there. That guy said he would be there and he didn't show up. <laughs> and then he was man enough to come tell me why. And that he was sorry that he didn't show up when he said he would. You know, it was out of his hands. I thought he just didn't care, but it was out of his hands. He, he didn't mean to. I bet he shows up the next time. Where is our sincerity level on an individualistic basis? And then because we are a group of individuals, when you bring your number on 1 to 10, whether it be 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, if you were to put all of our numbers together, where's our sincerity level as a church? Because I can promise you this. The more transparent and honest and sincerely we seek God and live out God in our lives, the more people will be interested in what it is that we have. We, we have turned evangelism into a skill that you have to learn in a class. I don't understand that. How do we get there? I mean, I know, I've read a little bit of the history about it, how the programs came about and blah, 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 blah. I get all that. How do we get to the point where we're, where being an evangelist for God was knowing the right thing to say or the right counter-argument or how to defend your faith properly? 
Our faith should just be defended by our lives. It should just be defended by the way we treat each other. People outside of this group of people should say, I want to be in that group of people because they treat each other the way I want to be treated. I don't know if I believe what they believe. i tell you what, if what they believe leads them to treat each other like that, I want to know more about that. If what they believe leads them to work the way Johnny so-and-so works at work, I mean, I've never met a more honest guy in my life. I've never, I've never met a more sincere guy in my life. I've never met a more transparent person in my life. It's like he doesn't fear anything. If that's what people were saying about us, evangelism takes care of itself just by how we live. The conversations about what we believe are easy because it matches what we say we believe. See, being a hypocrite is not being perfect. The fact that we would even think that we're striving for perfection is what hypocrisy is. We're not trying to be perfect. We're trying to be authentic. We're trying to be sincere. I'm not good. God is good. I'm not special. God is special. If, if you have noticed anything good in me, the conversation we're having out in the world, if you've noticed anything good in me, if you've noticed any love in me, any faithfulness in me, any mercy in me, if you've noticed anything good in me, it's not me. It's because of who I believe in. It's because of who saved me. It's because there is only one way to be saved, and I'm thankful that God even made one way. It's not that there's one way and it's mine. I've got the one way. I'm special. No. <laughs> it's that we can't even believe that God would want there to be one way for us to be with Him forever. We're not trying to be perfect, church. We're not pretending to be perfect. That's inauthentic because you're not perfect and I'm not perfect and we're never going to be perfect. But we can treat each other well. We can treat each other well. We can say, I'm sorry when we mess up. We can be transparent. That's all he's saying right here. Pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. When our sincerity level as a group of people moves from wherever it is more towards being a 10, then I think God's going to bless. I think God's going to move naturally because we'll be doing the things of God. And when you're doing the things of God, He blesses, and He moves, and He does special things. But it's up to us as individuals to get on our faces and say, God, forgive me for my hypocrisy, and please give me the boldness to be real and transparent to the people in my lives and not pretend that I've got it all figured out or that I know how to do everything and that I never make a mistake. And certainly, God, certainly, church, we can't be the church of those early woes that not, not only are they just not admitting that they're not perfect, but they are intentionally 
using their position, their, quote, relationship with God for their own gain and their own namesake so that they can move up politically or socially or financially or whatever it is that people do to use God for that reason. That, that can't ever be us. And if it is, God have mercy on us. God have mercy on us. If that ever is us. Because I can tell you this, judging by Jesus' words in Matthew 23, He don't like that at all. He's looking for real, sincere followers of Jesus. And it is simple. It's one action. Be transparent. Be transparent. Be real. Be honest. It's all the same thing. Be sincere in who you are and who you follow. God takes care of the rest. So, we have one more song to sing today. As we sing it, it's an opportunity to sing. It's an opportunity to meditate on God's Word. It's an opportunity to respond in prayer to God's Word, whatever that is for you today. I pray that we would earnestly seek a desire to move towards sincerity in our lives, in our faith, in our walk with God, in our lives outside, Monday through Saturday. I pray that would be our prayer this morning. Lord, I come to you today, and I thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that that we would be very mindful of the tricks that our flesh pulls on ourselves, that Satan uses to distract us, the things that would casually allow us to rationalize our lack of sincerity, and therefore becoming hypocrites. I pray, God, that we would be very vigilant to not let that be the case, that we would allow you to work through us, in us, and that the fear that comes from being transparent, God, would be gone from the boldness that comes from faith in you, from living life your way, that we would desire to please you, over all, over anything, over everything. God, make us a people that are sincerely desiring and seeking you and the things that you want us to seek, God. We love you and we thank you for your word, God, and we thank you that it brings us to the point of decision. I pray that you would draw us closer to you today in those decisions, decisions God. I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.